Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 35, Christmas and New Year's. It's that time of year again, the snow is falling beautifully, the starry winter sky is out, and everyone is full of good holiday cheer. Or, if you're me, the Seattle skies are gray, there's a constant drizzle, and you're still trying to figure out why everyone is so excited about this Christmas thing. I'm not saying Hanukkah is better or anything, but we get to eat donuts. Just saying. Anyway, I figure it's the perfect time of year to wrap up 2013 with a quick look at two Western holiday traditions and the way they've been imported into Japan. After all, I don't know about you, but I could certainly use something a little bit lighter after those two episodes on Okinawa. Anyway, despite having a very small Christian population, about 1% of Japan is Christian, and a traditional history of using the Chinese lunar calendar rather than the western solar one, Christmas and New Year's are big holidays in Japan, so let's talk about how that happened. Let's start with Christmas. The first record we have of Christmas being celebrated as a holiday in Japan comes from 1552, when Portuguese Jesuits held a Christmas mass for some Japanese Catholic converts. From then on, the Catholic establishment in Japan would hold masses for Christian believers, though always with Europeans officiating. However, once the Tokugawa came to power, it became illegal for Christians to openly celebrate Christmas or anything else. If you'll recall, the Tokugawa shogunate banned Christianity for fear that it would lead to anti-government subversion. So for the entirety of the Tokugawa period, Christian observance was forced underground. There were a few Christians who continued to observe the religion, but they were few in number and forced to blend in with the rest of the population. These pressures led to the phenomenon of the so-called hidden Christians, or in Japanese, kakure kirishitan, Christians who hid their religious views by disguising them in Japanese trappings, for example, by depicting the Virgin Mary with imagery associated with the sun goddess Amaterasu, or celebrating Christian holidays by disguising them as native ones. However, the restrictions against Christianity were lifted during the final years of the Tokugawa. During the early 1860s, a French missionary living in the village of Urakami in Kyushu, freshly arrived and ready to make some converts in a land that, as best he knew, was composed of nothing but heathens, was astonished to find a group of self-professed Japanese Christians at his door, professing their beliefs and asking that he lead a mass. The name of this missionary, by the way, was, and I'm sure I'm going to mangle this because my French is terrible, Bernard Petitjean. Petitjean immediately reached out to both the rest of the Catholic hierarchy, with news of the survival of Christianity in Japan, with Pope Pius IX going so far as to call it a miracle, and to the foreign powers in the area, asking that they intervene to protect these Christians. The major foreign powers, with France being the strongest of the predominantly Catholic nations leading the way, banded together to demand that the Japanese accept the right of Christians to religious liberty and that the laws against them be lifted. The shogunate, facing a demand backed up by considerably superior Western firepower, had no choice but to comply, and the anti-Christian injunctions were lifted. Christianity could now be openly practiced, but the stigma of suspicion from the Tokugawa period remained. Christians, though they had to be tolerated legally for fear of reprisals from the Western Great Powers, were felt to be untrustworthy because of their divided loyalties between the Church on one hand and the Emperor and the Imperial State on the other. 
In particular, when the Meiji government began promoting Shinto as the official state religion, Christians, who refused to involve themselves in state Shinto on the grounds that it was idolatry, were viewed as disloyal due to their refusal to participate in the basic rituals of the state. The story of Uchimura Kanzo illustrates the problem nicely. When, in 1898, this Christian teacher at the Tokyo Daiichi Koko, the same one with the excellent baseball team from episode 13, refused to bow to a copy of the Imperial Rescript on Education, he launched a national storm. He was accused of everything from anti-monarchism to lese majeste, the insulting of the person of the emperor, to treason, and was forced to quit his job. He spent the rest of his life attempting, unsuccessfully, to fight the stigma that Japanese Christians were disloyal to the country. In such an environment, it's hardly surprising that open celebrations of Christmas of any sort were not encouraged. Though Christian celebrations, including Christmas, were not banned and were technically legally protected, public celebration was rare. Instead, private celebration among Japanese Christians and foreign Christians was the norm. Even this limited safe space for Christianity was suppressed as the militarists came to power in the 1930s. Christianity, like all things Western, was seen as a symbol of foreign influence and decadence, and those under its sway were considered to be potential subversives whose loyalty could not be counted on, since it was divided between God and the Emperor. Notice here the echoes of the rationale for anti-Christian persecution in the 1600s. Both during the Edo and Imperial periods, Christianity was persecuted out of fear that it divided loyalties and could be used to create potential anti-government fifth columnists. Funnily enough, in a comparison that I am sure will flatter neither side, this is the same rationale that was used to prosecute socialists and Japanese Marxists. All of this is despite the fact that several Japanese Christians actively supported the war effort, and at least two of the kamikaze pilots that we know of were Japanese Christians. Anyway, the restrictions put in place never devolved to the level of the Edo period, for example the act of hunting, arrest, and execution of Christians, but Christians were generally prevented from gaining government office, for example the highest ranking Japanese Christian that I know of, the future Prime Minister Yoshida Shigeru, went to great pains to hide his religion, and while Christianity was legally recognized, its meetings were monitored and public displays of religiosity were strictly forbidden. However, the end of the war brought an end to all of this. The new constitution guaranteed unqualified freedom of religion, and Christianity in every denomination was allowed to proliferate freely. To a large extent, however, Christianity has never really caught on, even with this newfound freedom. The reasons why are very complex, but the biggest is probably just the long-standing association of Christianity with foreignness, and thus not Japanese-ness. And yet today, Christmas is a very large holiday in Japan. Far more Japanese celebrate Christmas than the number of Christians in the country. What gives? Well, the answer is that Christmas has morphed into a sort of second Valentine's Day. After World War II, the proliferation of American culture in Japan, brought over by movies, TV, and American GIs stationed in the country, introduced more and more Western culture into Japan. In particular... American movies were among the first to freely depict relationships between men and women, a subject deemed far too decadent for imperial-era cinema. As a result, many young Japanese began emulating American traditions of courtship and dating. 
and picked up on the romantic meaning of Christmas rather than the religious one. It's a bit of a crude metaphor, but imagine someone whose only knowledge of Christmas came from the movie Love Actually, and you begin to get the idea. Never once to miss out on a cash cow, Japanese companies began getting in on the action and marketing the holiday as a romantic occasion for couples, much in the same way Valentine's Day is marketed in the U.S. This is not uncommon in Japan. Savvy marketers for the Japanese branch of KFC also introduced an ad campaign in the 1970s to convince Japanese that Americans ate KFC for Christmas, and as a result, KFC now does a brisk business in Christmas chicken, dinners that cost over 30 bucks a pop, with day-of lines around two hours long. So that's Christmas in Japan, then, a religious holiday divorced from its religious roots and turned into a marketing opportunity. So I guess it's not that different from American Christmas after all. So what about New Year's? Well, the celebration of Western New Year's, as you might be able to guess, is pretty recent in Japan, and arrived with the decision to switch to the Western solar calendar, with 12 months and 365 days and so on, in the dawning years of the Meiji era. Prior to Meiji, Japan, like the rest of East Asia, had used a lunar calendar imported from China. The details of the lunar calendar aren't really important and involve way too much math for my tastes. Simply put, this is the calendrical system from which we get the Chinese New Year, which takes place in the early months of each solar year, late January to early February. Faced with the need to integrate Japan into the world system as it existed in the 1800s, the Japanese government jettisoned this lunar calendar in 1873. Nowadays, the old lunar calendar is basically ignored, and Lunar New Year celebrations are very uncommon in Japan. This is very different from China. Both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China on Taiwan celebrate the Lunar New Year as a public holiday, despite being founded by two avowedly anti-traditional parties, the Chinese Communist Party and the Guomindang. Part of this probably has to do with the gap between the institution of the solar calendar in Japan and the institution in China. China did not start using the solar calendar officially until the founding of the Republic of China in 1912, and even then it took decades to get the entire country to switch over due to the fragmentary nature of Chinese politics until the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Anyway, while Japan switched to the solar calendar, traditions involving the celebration of New Year's were not westernized in the same way. Much of this had to do with the official promotion of Shinto by the government, validating a much more Japanese approach to the celebrating of New Year's, even if the New Year being celebrated was a Western one and not a Japanese one. Thus, for example, New Year's is celebrated with a ritual trip to a Shinto shrine or sometimes a Buddhist temple, though before the end of the Japanese Empire this was less common for reasons that we'll get into in another episode, for what is called the Hatsumolde, the first shrine trip of the New Year. Priests offer blessings for parishioners, families buy amulets or charms for good fortune in the coming year, and they burn those from the previous year. Shinto strongly associates newness with purity or spiritual cleanliness, and thus, things that are old with spiritual pollution. Thus, old charms are not merely keepsakes, but potentially active magnets for bad luck. Buddhist temples will also generally ring their bells 108 times representing the traditional 108 sins of man in Buddhist theology. Traditional foods, called osechiryori, are eaten around the time of New Year's, 
The variety of osechi is quite extensive, but common options include things like seaweed, mochi or rice cakes, or prawns. In addition to being traditional, all of these items keep very well. They became standard New Year's fare in a time before refrigerators when most stores would be closed for New Year's and the days immediately following. Houses will also set up small ornaments outside their doors called kadomatsu, which are designed to be temporary housing for the Toshigami, the gods of the new year, who will come around and bless the homes that they visit with good fortune. This is probably the most direct carryover from Edo period New Year celebrations of the Chinese Lunar New Year. Some Western imports have also become common features of New Year celebrations. For example, the performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is very common during New Year's celebrations in Japan. This was popularized by German POWs during the First World War. The symphony became associated with New Year's celebrations and was one of the few pieces of overtly Western culture encouraged by the imperial government, particularly during the 1930s, when cozying up to the Germans was very much on the government's agenda. Much like Christmas in the U.S., gifts are also given for New Year's, though usually in the form of money rather than a specific item. The sending of Nengajo, a sort of New Year's card analogous to the Christmas card in the U.S., is also a common feature of this time of year. Much like the Christmas card, Nengajo are sent to one's entire network of extended friends and family as a way of maintaining those relationships. Similar to the sort of set holiday phrases in the U.S., Seasons greetings, happy holidays, that kind of thing. Nengajo usually begin with set phrases like Akemashite omedato gozaimasu, roughly translating to Wishing you happiness at the dawn of a new year, or Kinga Shinnen, which reads closer to the traditional Happy New Year. So what does all of this tell us? What do all of these celebrations tell us about Japan? Well, I suppose Japanese holiday traditions help us think about the purposes of holidays more generally. The more cynical among us might say that they're well-designed ploys to pluck at our heartstrings in order to get into our wallets. And there's certainly a ring of truth to that, as anyone waiting for their bucket of Christmas chicken at KFC could tell you. However, if you're feeling more optimistic about it all, you might point to the fact that Christmas and New Year's in Japan, despite being celebrated very differently from the U.S., are celebrated for much the same reasons. The desire for good companionship, a secure family, and a prosperous New Year. After all, isn't that all anyone's really after? That's all for this week, and for the year of 2013. I'll be taking the next two weeks off to celebrate the holidays, but we'll be back on Saturday, January 11th, with our first episode for 2014. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening. This year has been a tremendous amount of fun. I've really enjoyed getting this project off the ground, and I'm looking forward to much more of it in 2014, and many more years to come after that. Thanks for listening. Have a happy holidays and a good New Year's, and I'll see you all in 2014.